Church, would you pray with me as we prepare to turn to God's word together? Father, we thank you for giving us a means by which we may know you. Lord, that is objective. God, that is not built on our perspective, our thoughts of what a God worthy of worship might be like, but rather we operate in a deductive manner, recognizing that we have been given a picture of who you are, a story in which you have interacted with that which you created such that we might know you. Lord, we, we turn now to this word and ask that the God who inspired it would speak to us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see you and your purpose for us. Lord, might we set aside those things that might distract, the worries, the troubles, the cares. Lord, even those things that we might be led to, to, to dwell on that are positive. Hopes, expectations, celebrations. God, might we focus now our minds and hearts on your word so that you might speak to us and make us more like your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, if you have your Bible... If you would turn with me to the book of Judges and find chapter 10, Judges chapter 10. And as you're finding our text for this morning, and by way of introduction, I'd like to share a story. Our first home, Melinda and my first home, was a cookie-cutter development special nestled in the foot of an Alabamian hill, surrounded on all sides by homes that were of similar shape and size, only spaced out about 10 feet apart. There were only three models to pick from in our neighborhood. Thankfully, the two on either side of ours were different, but despite the simplicity and design, the cheap construction, we loved our home. It was the first house in which we were able to entertain family and friends. It was the home into which we welcomed our three children, so it was very special to us. Uh, it was also very exposed to the elements. It was a new development. You can only imagine the contractor came in and he mowed down whatever existing vegetation was there. He napalmed the area, it felt like. And so what natural beauty had been before, as a gracious gentleman, he replaced with two things. One, sod. Now, not grass grown as you might hope for on a farmer's land. So not farm sod, but I think some poor farmer's sod. I think he literally stole the sod that we were given from a farmer because it was like a patchwork quilt. I've, I've never seen grass like we were given in suburbia. It, it just doesn't happen. And yet we were given grass and a token tree, a Bradford pear for those who are familiar. It smelled awful, but it grew quickly, which is likely the reason it was handed to us, a nasty thing. So needless to say, our house was hit and hit hard by the elements and being so well made, it didn't take long for our back door to begin to rot, evidencing the 12-hour days of direct sun without any kind of protection and the rains, the hurricane rains that we received every fall. And so thankfully we never had a problem with leakage. That was a gift of God. But the door frame did quickly begin to rot. And since we didn't know a Jeff, a George, we didn't know a Jim, and my dad at that time lived on a different continent, I decided I was going to repair our door frame myself. With something I got at Lowe's, wood putty. 
It's amazing stuff for those of you who ever have a problem. Wood putty. I, it looked perfect. It promised to be perfect to fill in the little rotted holes that I'd found at the base of my door frame. And so I followed the instructions. That was the one thing I did well. I first scraped away any of the dead wood, then began sanding the hole to make sure that it was smooth, which wasn't really hard because by the time I was done scraping, there was very little rough edges left. However, there was also no end to the 2 by 4 that I had been scraping. In scraping away all the dead wood, I managed to scrape away the entire end of that 2 by 4 such that now our frame was no longer connected to the, to the foundation. Now, needless to say, my wife was freaked out, and she was very concerned for the continued structural integrity of our inexpensive home. And so she insisted, you better get a professional in here to fix this, which I promised her we couldn't afford. And not only that, I had this stuff that would work, wood putty. So over the course of the remaining time that we lived in that house, much like a Renaissance sculptor, I, I fashioned a new end to my two-by-four. I, I, I built this thing from wood putty. I saved my back door. But to be fair, my solution, while well-intentioned, would have given any normal carpenter a coronary. In church today... In a sense, we're going to study the salvation story of Jephthah that once again has traces of that for which we as human beings ultimately long. But as we'll see, is going to leave us shocked at its crude, wood putty-like conclusion, which I believe was written as so to point us to God's promised professional Savior whose salvation is so very great. So with your Bibles open to Judges 10, let me invite you to follow along as I begin reading from verse 17, where we're introduced to the instrument of salvation. The instrument of salvation, Judges 10, 17. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the Israel elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me? Drive me away from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be our head, the head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. And let's pause there. Church, as our text opens, it does so with the Ammonites having invaded Israel and camped in Gilead, we're told. The Israelites, who we saw last week, have been under great distress because of their sin, have camped at Mizpah. And as 
they face this enemy. The leaders unsurprisingly offer the role of president or head honcho, whichever, to whomever is willing to lead them into battle. And I, church, I say this is unsurprising because prior to this, if you were with us last week, we've seen God had seen through his people's apparent apology for their sin and directed them to seek aid from the idols after whom they'd lusted. Now, in their hour of need, you notice how there's no mention of Yahweh? Meaning the people hadn't really turned to the Lord for help, even though they promised to get rid of their foreign gods and serve him. Rather, rather than turning to the professional, it appears that Israel has decided to fix their doorframe themselves. And friends, how prone are we to that same process? You know, how often do we attempt to solve our problems ourselves? Rather than waiting on the Lord, as the psalmist sings in Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. We rush ahead. Now, I realize that this warning, if you've been with us through the course of our examination of the judges, is beginning to sound like a broken record because we've encountered it over and over in these stories of the judges. But it's true. And church, I believe we do tend to act and then pray that God would bless our efforts rather than praying for God to reveal the actions he would have us take in the first place. So Israel sets about solving their problem themselves. And this was, as one pastor theologian notes, this was a purely secular moment into which steps our new judge, Jephthah, who, next to being described as a mighty warrior, we also discover is a reproached savior. A reproached savior, because verse 1 informs us that his mother was a prostitute. So despite having as Gileadite a father as one could have, because his dad's name is Gilead, Jephthah's mother is a harlot. And in this ancestry, friends, I believe that we are given, surely given echoes of Abimelech, whose mother was, as you recall, Gideon's concubine. Only Jephthah's parentage is even more scandalous, as the silence surrounding this woman's name and, and even her, her location suggests she could have been a Canaanite. Regardless, Jephthah's reproached at birth. But who else was? Jesus, wasn't he? The son of a teenaged mother who became pregnant prior to marriage. Jesus' birth was scandalous and publicly so. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus challenged those who had heard his message, who believed his message, to hold to my teaching. As if you do, then you are really my disciples. Then he said this, then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. And shocked by this accusation coming from Christ that they were enslaved, the crowd responded by arguing, well, no, Abraham is our father. Now, we're children of the promise, and therefore we're God's possession. However, Jesus pointed out, if that were so, then you would obey me, just as Abraham had. At which point, angry beyond control, they slanderously stabbed their fingers at Christ and said, we aren't illegitimate children, meaning like you. God is our Father. God himself. So Jesus was born in scandal, just as Jephthah was, a reality that's completely contrary to our notions of salvation. Jephthah's a reproached Savior, but he's also a rejected Savior. As we're told there, as soon as his family had the sense to act, they drove the man away, desperate to guard their inheritance and their good name. And again, church, we see these messianic markers, don't we? As Christ was also despised and rejected. He was driven from his home in Nazareth as those who'd watched him grow up couldn't accept the claims that he was making. Luke tells us in his gospel, chapter 4 and verse 28, that all the people in the synagogue were furious 
when Jesus told them that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And at that point, they got up and drove him out of the town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off. Christ came to those who were his own, and they didn't receive him, just as the prophet Isaiah had prophesied. Chapter 53 and verse 3, where speaking of the coming one, the prophet said, he will be a man despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Christ was a rejected savior, just like Jephthah. And again, this is inconsistent, right? With our contemporary notions of salvation. Jephthah was a rejected savior who, as our author continues, as a young man tells us that he found himself without a physical or social home. He's an outcast, apparently without a future. And so he moves, we're told, to the land of Tob, which ironically translates as the land of goodness. It was, it was anything but. And it's there that Jephthah surrounds himself with this group of adventurers who followed him. And just to clarify, these adventurers, as the NIV there describes them, these weren't guys who simply loved to wear chacos and camp and fish outdoors. This is a term better captured a sense, at least, I believe, by the ESV, which describes these as worthless fellows. So Jephthah and the boys didn't tent camp outside and like the fish and hide and climb rocks. These guys actually hid behind rocks and then ambushed the innocent bystanders that went by. They were, they were bandits engaged in a life of brigandry when all of a sudden, who should come calling but Jephthah's bros from Gilead with this news that are going to make him a restored Savior. A restored Savior. In a shocking turn of events, Gilead's elders offered Jephthah the presidency. And do you notice how he responds? Church, I believe this is telling. And I think it reflects a pattern that if you were with us, we saw last week in Israel's interaction. Jephthah doesn't just jump on his family's invitation to return home to be their leader, does he? He asks them this pointed question. Why me? Why me? Didn't, didn't you hate me? Drive me away? In other words, go save yourselves. Does that sound familiar? Remember how we saw Yahweh's response to Israel? Why me? Didn't I save you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, Ammonites, etc., etc. But then you rejected me and you served your own interests. Don't cry to me now. Go save yourselves. Friends, I believe that Jephthah's objection to his family's request here is very similar to Yahweh's, as is Jephthah's prior rejection. Because last week we saw in chapter 10 and verse 6 how the Israelites forsook the Lord. They no longer served him. And this disobedience is that then resulted in Israel's distress, which I believe we see mirror today in Gilead's pending battle with the Ammonites, along with their repentance displayed as they now sought Jephthah out, just as we saw last week Israel cried out to the Lord for his saving intervention, conceding, well, God, we were wrong. You do whatever you please, only please save us, right? At which point we see that God could bear Israel's misery no longer. So he graciously acquiesced as we see Jephthah does. Church, I believe that these parallels were intended by our author to point us to their fulfillment in Christ, where we see at Pentecost, Peter delivers this powerful sermon in which he points out Israel's rejection and crucifixion of God's promised Messiah. In Acts 2, verse 22, Peter declares, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man credited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among him through or through him 
among you, and as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you put him to death by nailing him to a cross. And then in their response of horror at what they've done, Peter directs them to this, to this point. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So the very Savior that Israel had rejected became their source of suffering. Have you found peace in the Savior that you crucified? Has God's has He brought you to your knees in humility with the realization that it was your sin, my sin, that sent Christ to the cross? That He suffered for me. He suffered for you. He died in our place so that we might be forgiven and set free. Have you confessed your sin? In Jephthah, God sent His people, Israel, an instrument of salvation, who then we'll see recounted the history of salvation. The history of salvation. Would you look back with me now to verse 12 there in chapter 11? That's where our story continues. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against us that you've attacked our country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Shabbat, all the way to the Jordan. Now, give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, this is what Jephthah says. And church, in the verses that then ensue, I believe we're given this sort of two-phase rendering, if you will, of Israel's entrance into the promised land. And in this first half, Jephthah deals with nothing but historical fact. So from verse 15 there, almost through verse 20, he simply recounts Israel's dealings with Edom, with Moab, and then with Sion, the king of the Ammonites, when they first arrived, fresh out of their desert wanderings. And in this initial interaction, it's as if Jephthah is essentially providing the Ammonite king with whom he's interacting, transcripts of the messages that were sent between these two parties, along with all of the details of Israel's movements at that time regarding geography, so that he might establish Israel's rights to the land in question. In essence, Jephthah's he's beginning with this factual argument in his attempt to avoid unnecessary conflict. However, verse 21, things change. He introduces a new line of reasoning. I believe a theological line of reasoning. Because you notice how verse 21 reads, Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his men into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Then again, verse 23. Now, since the Lord the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people. What right do you have to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord, our God, has given us, we will possess. And then that reference there to Chemosh, which was a, a Moabite God, not an Ammonite one, Jephthah was likely acknowledging the Ammonites' rights to the land of Moab, which they'd taken in a manner very similar to Israel. And so it appears, to me at least, that Jephthah was employing every possible means of diplomacy, short of conceding, which he can't do. And so he concludes, let the Lord, the judge, decide this dispute. Unfortunately, Jephthah's story fell on deaf ears, as we're told in verse 28, that the king of Ammon paid no attention to the message that Jephthah sent him. And church, just as Ammon's king remained hard-hearted to God's salvation story, it doesn't mean that we who are present today need do so as well. Because the gospel proclaimed, the good news, the story of salvation proclaimed 
is the means by which God has determined to raise spiritually dead men and women, men and women in, in altercation, violent opposition to God from death to life. It's as the Apostle Paul declared in Romans 10, how then can they call on the one of whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? Church, this is why I believe Jesus commissioned his disciples to make disciples of all nations. And it's why we've been called to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we possess. So this morning, hear the gospel. In the beginning, a loving God, all-powerful God, created everything. We're human beings. We, at the culmination of his created order, and God desired that his creation have a relationship with him. And so he gave instructions to provide for and to protect that relationship. But his creation rejected him, his instructions. And they desired to replace him. And so they became separated from him who is life, God, in whom is life. And in this act, death entered God's created order. And now we are all born under its curse. We spend our lives, brief as they are, seeking fulfillment and trying to find hope, which can only be found in God. But our every effort made to that end, apart from God, is marred by brokenness. It's evidenced, as we see in the scriptures, in the story of Israel, as they continued to fail. This is why God promised them, as we've been examining in the book of Judges, saviors. It's why he sent them judges to, to display for them both the depth of their need, but also the qualifications of the Savior. So Jephthah was like Israel, as we've seen, in every way. And so he served as God's instrument of salvation. He then proclaimed God's story, his history of salvation. But in Jephthah, I believe we see a picture of the imperfection of salvation. The imperfection of salvation. And I would like us to pick the story back up in verse 29, there of chapter 11, where it continues. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, he crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror in the vicinity of Minnith, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned home to Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request. And she said, give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead, Gileadite. Church, what a tragic ending to what promised to be 
such a glorious triumph. The, the Spirit of the Lord, we're told, came on Jephthah. And as we've seen before, this ensures success. And it does again in this instance. Only we have this crazy vow that we run into in verse 30 and 31 that just mars the rest of the story, doesn't it? And at first... Jephthah's words seem innocent enough. I mean, the man's getting ready to go to war. So, I mean, in desperation, he makes this vow to God. Who, who amongst us hasn't, in a time of trial, faced with some big life test or hurdle, made a commitment or deal with the divine? You know, I've often spoken words which have reflected Jephthah's sentiments here and have other biblical characters. Hannah, David as examples. I believe we're in good company here. However, while we may share Jephthah's sentiments, a close consideration of his words reveals some significant differences. I, I hope. I hope. Jephthah's vow reveals ungodly, unbiblical zeal. Because he pledges to sacrifice as a burnt offering, not the firstborn from his flocks or his fields or his coop, but that which comes out of the door of my house. And just keeping in mind that this idea of a household pet that's a fairly recent phenomenon on the scale of history. So what did the man think would be the first thing to welcome him? Worse, who? And while the grammar here is correctly rendered whatever, as in whatever comes out of my house, not whoever, there is still little way to read this as not referencing a person. Further, why burn this whatever? Why not simply set it aside? Church, in his zeal, clearly without knowledge, Jephthah rashly, some would add selfishly, and I think they're right, selfishly vowed to sacrifice the first person he saw, who, it turns out, is his only child. And the way that our author renders this section, I believe, is so revealing, because here's the man who was driven away from his family, right? And now he becomes the cause of his own daughter's exile, a girl whose simple innocence is so sharply contrasted in all that we've read by her father's ambitious self-centeredness. As Jephthah had practiced his banditry in the hills, robbing all of those poor innocents, now she awaits and wanders those same hills in her innocence, mourning what will be ultimately her life's end at the hand of her murderous father, who ends his own family line. Church, there's so much that we could probably say here regards Jephthah's actions specific, but the point that I believe our author desires we see is made through silence. Meaning, notice how there is no mention of Yahweh here. Following his spirit's empowering of Jephthah, that's documented in verse 29. Everything that follows is silent. And I believe it is so because it's intended to reveal for us Jephthah's shortcomings as a Savior. The imperfection of Jephthah's salvation is marked by his words here, revealing ungodly zeal. And it's also marked by Ephraim's words that reveal stubborn pride. Would you look with me now at verse 1 there, chapter 12. The men of Ephraim called out their forces, crossed over to Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, why did you go to the Ammonites without calling us to go down with you? We're going to burn your house over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites. And although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now, why have you come up today? 
to fight me. Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan, leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied, no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. Church, in an almost identical manner to that which we saw with Gideon, Ephraim waits till all the fighting's done and then decides it's time to show up. Now, what they were thinking here is, is unclear. It's possible that they'd expected the same politicking that they'd experienced with Gideon, where their exploits, their exploits were heralded, their egos were stroked. Maybe, maybe they thought that they could just intimidate this social misfit and influence him in ways that would be beneficial to their tribe. Who knows? <laughs> Whatever they expected, it wasn't what Jephthah was, what his response was. As this guy goes ape, on Ephraim. I mean, he then, along with all of his men, sets up camp on the banks of the Jordan and proceeds to slaughter all of his countrymen, albeit bellicose, obnoxious countrymen, but he proceeds to slaughter them based on linguistics. And here in this essence, in essence this Jephthah Shibboleth, Sibboleth stereotype is like those that we have when you hear someone say, Tatika, and we would assume, well, this guy's from New England, he's a Boston man. Or you hear him say, I'm going to go play in the crick. And we got, he's got to be from Pennsylvania because we say creek, not crick. Or they say well, and they take that vowel in the middle, and they double it, and it becomes whale. And we know that they are from whale down south of the Mason-Dixon line. But humor aside, at the end of Jephthah's civil war, Ephraim has been decimated, virtually wiped out as a tribe. Such a tragic conclusion to this Savior's saving career. And yet, yes, we can celebrate as Jephthah has defeated the Ammonites. They're subdued. But we're also left to grieve that we're surrounded by the grave of this deliverer's only daughter, as well as all the lifeless forms of Ephraim's once cocky militia that are strewn along the Jordan's banks. This salvation, come to conclusion, is imperfect. And church, I believe that our author desired it be pictured so. Because as one commentator notes, he wants us to see Yahweh's deliverance tinctured by human foolishness and arrogance. It's as if even a winner can't get a clean win. We have a salvation here that's marred. The writer's suggesting that if we seek a perfect salvation, then we've got to look to one who's greater than Jephthah. And when I finished sculpting that two by four in wood putty, sanded it smooth, painted it, it looked pretty good. It looked pretty good. It appeared to all but a professional. I'd saved my rotting door. But church, my saving work was imperfect. And all it could do was point to the day when a professional would have to come and repair it, restore it to perfection. And church, in Jephthah's story of salvation, I believe we're given a picture of our need for a Savior, the instrument of salvation who would be reproached, rejected and then restored. He would be like us in every way, but he would be without sin. And his gospel story 
is historical fact. As Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, he lived, died, was buried in the tomb for three days, and then was raised, documented, raised from the dead. And this salvation story is grounded in history, but it is also a theology as it reveals God to us in a way that we may know him. Jesus is the means by which we may be forgiven and set free because his salvation is perfect. Jephthah's story provided God's people with a taste of what God had promised when one day he would step out of heaven's glory into our misery and provide us with life in all its abundance. Have you experienced God's great salvation? Or are you still holding on to the imperfections of your own attempts to work a miracle for eternity? Because if you are, then your doorframe looks much like mine. It might last for a time, but inevitably your house will fall. I hope you won't let your house fall. Would you trust Christ? Would you pray with me as we close? Father God, you have given us in your word constant reminders of the only hope that we have. Lord, and we who are your children, we give you praise for the, the, the longer we look at your word, the more we are made aware of our deep depravity and our constant need of grace, of how we remain sustained by your gospel. Lord, and for those that might be here this morning that have been clinging to their own efforts, their wood putty-like preparation for eternity, Lord, while it might satisfy for a time, Lord, it is imperfect. It is far from lasting. Lord, for that we need Jesus. And I pray today that you would help shine a light on those efforts that we may have had to this point to give ourselves confidence. Lord, we might prop up, but we can't sustain forever. Only you can. God, and you bring us to a place where we recognize in ourselves that need of how Christ's life, death, and resurrection were because of our sin, on account of our failure. And you lead us to confess. Lord, I would pray that today, if there is one, any, who have yet to acknowledge their need and make it so before others, confidently standing before those who would celebrate with them, for we share that same brokenness. Lord, that today might be that day. God, and for we, your church, no matter where we stand in regards to the contexts of our lives, we need be reminded that the salvation you have worked is perfect. And so we cling to you, God, knowing that you work this according to your will for our good and your glory. And we pray for those whom we know who have yet to make their sin known, confess it, Lord, might you work as only you can work in the lives of these that we know, these loved ones, and bring healing and life for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.